prayer. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth. They receive their reward in full, but when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep babbling like the pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Morning. So, let's talk about toilet paper. (laughs) How many of you are the kind of people who put it so the roll is on the outside, like a waterfall? Okay. How many of you are the behind, like the wall of a cave people? All right. The only reason I ask is because in 1986, there was actually an advice columnist who was asked this very question, what is the right way to put on toilet paper? She said the back way, you know, like the wall of a cave. She received thousands, not hundreds or dozens, thousands of letters in protest. (laughs) So she switched her answer and said over, and she received thousands more (laughs) letters in protest. In total, she received more than 15,000 letters, making it the most controversial topic she addressed in 31 years of writing (laughs) that column. That is not made up. That is a true story. People have tried to connect toilet paper orientation to gender, to political philosophy, to your age, to your socioeconomic status. And I think most of us would, I hope, realize this is not a big deal. Right? People may have strong opinions one way or the other, but at the end of the day, there's no right or wrong way to do this. Whatever works for you. There are a lot of people who think about prayer like toilet paper. People might have strong opinions one way or the other, but at the end of the day, ultimately, it's a matter of preference. It doesn't really matter. And there's some truth to that. As believers, we definitely have a lot of freedom in prayer and where and when and how. But there actually is a wrong way to pray. That might sound surprising to some of you, but Jesus, in the passage that Gary just read for us, specifically taught his disciples how not to pray. And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. And it's in Matthew chapter 6. So if you have a Bible, I would encourage you to have it open just so it's there for reference. It's in Matthew chapter 6 and verses 5 through 8. Now, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew in front of you. Feel free to grab that. And as we look at that, let me give you just a little bit of context. This is found in what's called the Sermon on the Mount. It's a pretty famous part of the Gospel stories. It's part of Jesus' teaching. And this particular section of verses, these four, come within a larger section on the Sermon on the Mount. And this section, Jesus is dealing with three areas of spiritual life. Financial giving, prayer, and fasting. And what he does is he teaches the uh, basic principle at the beginning and then he applies it to all three areas. And so the basic principle is found in chapter 6, verse 1. And this is what Jesus says there. He says, Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. If you do, 
you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. And then basically the rest of the chapter is him laying out that principle as it applies to financial giving, prayer, and fasting. The basic principle is that life, the Christian life, is not lived on a stage, but in day-to-day life when no one else is looking. Our faith is not meant to be gaudy, showy, or self-glorifying. Instead, it's supposed to be a quiet, humble, and sincere faith. You and I, we're not religious entertainers looking for a crowd. Instead, we are sons and daughters of the living God, and he calls us to draw near and to actually follow him, not just to pretend to do so in order to impress those around us. And so we're going to look at how this applies particularly to prayer. And we're going to look at first how not to pray, and then Jesus also tells us why not to pray that way. So two major sections. And let's begin looking at verses 5 and 6. So Gary read them, but I'll review them for us quickly. Jesus says, When you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Now, as an aside, just quickly to notice, uh, I want you to notice that Jesus says, when you pray, not if. For Christ, he assumes that his followers will be people who pray. And I know for myself, this can be a convicting thought because so, many of the, so much of the time, our lives are not actually structured to make prayer a priority. Sure, we might try to squeeze it in here and there on the drive to something or quickly before bed, But we need to be a people who are really carving out time to spend with the Lord. We live in an age of constant distraction where our phones so much of the time are dictating our attention. They're telling us what to do. And more often than not, they're pulling us away from things that actually matter. And one of those things is prayer. We cannot be like the rest of the world in this regard. Where we're so busy with work or school, or whatever, that your schedule, instead of serving you, actually becomes a tyrant that prevents you from spending time with the most important person in the universe. Listen, I totally get the pressure of a full schedule. We'll always have emails to reply to. We will always have projects that need to be done, conversations that need to be had, chores. But if we're too busy to pray... We're just too busy. Our job is not our God. Our family is not our God. Our school is not our God. Jesus has brought us to the Father. He is our God. He deserves our time. So I just want us to notice the assumption that Jesus says when. Now let me quickly balance that out by reminding us that our religion is one of grace. Okay? The author of Hebrews, he invites us in chapter 4 to boldly approach the throne of grace with confidence. And he says you can do that in order to receive mercy and grace in your time of need. And so when we pray, we come to the Father and what do we get? Mercy and grace. And so while prayer is expected, it's not a slavish duty. It's actually a privilege to spend time with our Heavenly Father, to speak with Him, and to lay our needs before Him. And we'll talk more about that later. But that's just quickly, the, just the first 
word he says there, when you pray. But let's look at what he says about how not to pray. First, true prayer is humble, not proud. Jesus says, don't be like the hypocrites. Do you know the hypocrite is actually uh, comes from a Greek word that originally meant a stage actor, someone who would wear a mask to pretend to be someone for entertainment. And now over time, you can see how that came to mean what we uh, know it to mean today. Because that's not someone who's just acting. It's someone who's lying. It's someone who pretends to be someone they're not. And they're trying to deceive you and me. And Jesus says these religious hypocrites, oh man, they love to pray because they want to be seen by men. They want to be seen in the street corners and in the synagogues. Now obviously these were very public places where a person could stand up and have an audience. Now a quick note about street corners. If you or I were to be walking along, let's say downtown Vancouver near Esther Short Park or something, and you see somebody standing on the corner, head you know, raised up and hands lifted and they're praying loudly, we'd probably be more weirded out than anything. We'd probably, most of us, I think, would probably keep our distance, okay? In our culture, that's not a way of gaining respect. But in Jesus' day, it would have been. Because back then, as in some other cultures today, there were culturally set times of prayer, okay? It was just sort of expected, if you were Jewish, that you were going to set aside the, these few minutes or these, this particular time of day to pray. And everyone knew when that was. In fact, that's why um, some old church buildings have bell towers. Those were when those bells rang, that was a call to prayer. And so you can see the scenario that Jesus is laying out here. Somebody wants to be seen as holy and spiritual and all great, and so he's walking along and he times it so that he just happens to be in the most public and visible place when it comes time to pray. And you've got to remember, there's no cars or MP3 players back in the day, and so if you're near one of these goobers when it goes down, you cannot not hear him pray. You just are forced to notice how spiritual this guy is. For these kinds of people, the purpose of prayer is not the Lord. It is self-exaltation. And Jesus says that is exactly what they get. They get, they get what they want. They are seen by men. And Jesus says, I tell you the truth, they've received the reward in full. So that's all they get. They have settled for the reward here and now, and they have forsaken the reward that's coming. And then in verse 6, Jesus turns to us, and he says, but you, and the you here, there's an emphasis on the way it's worded. You, he's setting up a strong contrast. You're not like them. For those of us who are followers of Christ, we don't pray in order to be seen by men. We don't pray for the praise of people. Instead, Jesus says, go into your room, Close the door and pray. Now the word for room here is sort of like a closet or a storeroom. If you've ever heard the phrase a prayer closet, this is where it comes from. And the room uh, was much like a pantry. It was a specific word to mean an inner room inside the house that usually didn't have any windows. And it was probably the only door in the house that locked. Because you'd keep your food and other valuables there. The point is that this is the very opposite of a street corner. There's no audience, there's no show, it's quiet, it's out of the way. Jesus is removing all pretense from prayer here. And he says, that's where you need to go to pray. And when we go in, we shut the door. And the only person who knows that we're there is God himself. Just you and the Lord. 
In the 19th century, there was a Scottish uh, pastor. His name was Robert Murray McShane. And he has a quote that he's well known for, and it goes like this. What a man is on his knees before God, that he is, and nothing more. And the point he's making is that time spent alone with God, we don't have anything to bring to the table. It strips, of, it strips us of all pretense, the showiness that all of us, to some degree or another, we will use in order to protect our reputation or to make us look good in the eyes of others. And all of us do that to some degree or other. But he says, when you stand before the Lord, you don't have that. You, you just, you, all you have is to relate to him one to one without pretending to be someone we're not. And that is one of the healthiest most profound, soul-shaping, character-forming, one of the most joy-producing and peace-generating habits that you could ever have. And so I encourage you, if you're a follower of Christ, not to neglect it, to spend time with the Lord alone. So then, we need to address the elephant in the room. Do I need to rebuke Olivia for praying out loud in front of all of you? Or or Rita. I mean, they just literally prayed in front of an audience. I have prayed in front of you. Should we cancel the week of prayer? I mean, what were we thinking? We are literally gathering people in a room to pray out loud in front of each other. Okay, we intuitively know that's not what Jesus is getting at, right? That's not the point. Jesus himself prayed publicly several times. So did the apostles who heard his teachings. We see groups praying in scripture. It's a good, godly, and healthy thing. The issue is not whether the prayer is public. It's whether or not you're using prayer as a mask to puff up your pride. It's praying intentionally to draw attention to yourself. Now, I realize there are probably a lot of people in this room for whom that is not an issue. You do not like to be the center of attention. You don't like the spotlight. In fact, when you're in prayer groups, you intentionally don't say anything. And so they might feel like, yeah, this doesn't really apply to me. You might not be the kind of person to pray in the street corners in the synagogues, but, and I would encourage you to ask the Lord if this is you, you might be keeping silent for the same reason. You might be Refusing to pray because you're worried about what people will think of you. Because you think, I don't have the right words. I'm not as eloquent as the other person. I'm going to stumble or whatever. And the reason for your silence may be the very same reason for the gaudy display of others. It's your reputation that you're trying to protect. And rather than puffing up your pride, you are trying to protect it. And in both cases, what's happening is not prayer, but a pretense to either preserve or to improve your self-image. Now, please listen to what I'm not saying. I am not trying to force extroverts to be introverts and introverts to be extroverts, okay? I, I understand that your personality may be inclined one way or the other. That's fine. The issue isn't who's talking and who's not. The issue is, is pride getting in the way of you praying? Is your thought and image of yourself more important to you than speaking humbly with the Lord. And that can happen either through showmanship or sealed lips. And when Jesus does here in showing us the contrast between the street corners and the closet, 
is to show us the contrast between the heart of the hypocrite and the heart of the disciple. The hypocrite, he prays in order to be seen by others, but the disciple prays to be heard by God. Psalm 27, 8, it says, My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, O Lord, I will seek. You see, the point of prayer is seeking the face of God. And when you're doing that, it will not matter what people think. It could be in a street corner, could be in a synagogue, could be a closet, could be wherever. In fact, with the help of the secular prophet Dr. Seuss, you could pray in a boat, you could pray with a goat, you could pray in the rain and in the dark and on a train, you can car and in a tree, you could pray in a house, you could pray with a mouse, you could pray in a box, you could pray with a fox, you could pray here or there, you could pray anywhere. The point that Jesus is making is not about prayer's place, but its purpose. It is to humbly seek God's face. And when your intent is to spend time with the Lord, it will not matter who is looking or listening. You might end up on the street corner. You might end up in a closet. It doesn't matter. That being said, there is some wisdom. If you're going to carve out time, there is wisdom in choosing a place that's removed free from distraction, your phone's not there, and you can just focus. Well, that's the first point, that prayer is not proud but humble. Secondly, prayer is to be personal, not mechanical. Okay? So, this is what Jesus is getting at in verses 7 and 8, where he says, And when you pray... Do not keep on babbling like the pagans, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. The idea here is praying without really engaging our hearts and minds. It's so easy, especially if you've been walking with the Lord for a while, to just mindlessly repeat the same phrases, the same words, and you don't actually mean them. Now, I'm, I'm not going to, um, as an example of the kind of thing that Jesus is talking about, I'm not trying to pick on anything in particular, but this is just an example. There is a form of Buddhism that teaches that if you, if you recite this particular phrase enough times, then the enlightened spirit will hear this phrase, or unenlightened spirit will hear this phrase and help you along your own path. And so there are those who are, those who are very committed to that, will commit to certain amount of um, time saying that uh, chant per day. In fact, if you've ever heard of a prayer wheel where you spin it and it's got words on it, that's where it originated. It's the more efficient way to get those prayers in, to get the numbers up so you're heard. And I'm not just pointing out Buddhism. Christians do this all the time. Ironically, with the Lord's Prayer, which is the very next thing he's giving us, We will take the words that Jesus said and we might mindlessly repeat them thinking because Jesus said these, because they're in the Bible, they are therefore kind of the the key that unlocks the door. And so I just have to say it enough times. And so we think, yeah, we'll keep just saying that. We'll keep doing the same thing. You might have a a prayer that you say before bedtime or before meals, and I'm not against formal pre-written prayers. I'm not against that, and I don't think Jesus is either. The issue is whether or not our mind is engaged. Now, Jesus also says they think they're going to be heard because of their many words. 
But this doesn't necessarily mean that long prayers are bad. Jesus himself pulled at least one all-nighter praying. The night before he was arrested, he prayed several hours. We know he got up earlier than most others and would go off and pray. Jesus spent significant amounts of time in prayer. So long, long prayers are not inherently bad. But they're not inherently good either. We, we tend to think that if a prayer is long, then it's good. It's spiritual. It might not be. It might be a terrible prayer. You can use a lot of words and say nothing. People do it all the time. It's like sending a fancy envelope in the mail that you've colored and it's got decorations and the address is so perfect and there's nothing inside. It's pointless. It's meaningless. It's not the length that matters. It's the substance. Some of you, though, might be thinking, wait a minute. Isn't there a time in the Bible where Jesus teaches that we should, like, continue to pray the same thing over and over? There is a parable that Jesus teaches that seems to lead us in that direction. And so we are going to move to answering that question. Uh, but first, answering that will actually move us into the second major section of the sermon. So remember, the first was how not to pray. First, true prayer is humble, not proud, and it is personal, not mechanical. Now, as we answer this question about repetition and should we bring the same prayers before the Lord over and over, it's going to continue to flesh out that personal mechanical piece and it will lead us into why not to pray that way. So the, the parable that Jesus tells is in Luke chapter 18. And if you're not familiar with it, that's okay. What a parable is, is it's a short fictional story that teaches a truth, that illustrates a point. And so Jesus tells a parable about a widow. And he says there's a widow who is suffering some form of oppression. She's got an adversary. We don't know particularly what's happening, but she needs justice. And so she brings it before a judge, but Jesus tells us that this judge, he is unjust, and he doesn't care about people. And so he doesn't listen to her. He, he refuses to hear her case. This woman has no money and no political power to make this judge listen. And so she does the only thing she can. She badgers him over and over. Day in, day out, she's in the court. Hear my case. Hear my case. Hear my case. You can almost imagine her following him home, following him to work. And over time, she wears him down. Even though time and again he had refused, over time he is bothered enough just by her showing up all the time that he says, fine, I'll listen to you. And he gives her justice. And Jesus says, in fact, it tells us at the beginning of that parable that Jesus told that parable in order to teach his disciples to always pray and to never give up, to come before the Lord over and over and over. Now, what's interesting is that actually the, the point of the parable and the point of what he's teaching here in Matthew 6 are actually the same thing. Jesus is not saying God's like this judge, so just bother him enough. What he's using is to teach us what God's not like. God's not like this judge. So even when it seems like he's not listening, keep praying. For whatever reason you might feel like you're not being heard, that's not true, is the point of the Luke 18 parable. Now, Matthew 6, the reason Jesus tells us not to pray long prayers, it's answering the same question. The question is this, why should God listen to you? 
Is it because of your long words? Is it because you keep bringing the same thing over and over and over? No. It's the fact that he's our heavenly father. The hearing and answering of prayer is not based on our performance, but on the fact that in Christ we have been adopted as sons and daughters of God. And so in Luke 18, what he's teaching is, he's your father, he's listening. In Matthew 6, what he's teaching is, you don't need to do something fancy because he's your father, he's listening. The fundamental question is what inclines God's ear to hear our prayers? And it is not because we can talk a lot or say the right words. He listens because he cares. It's not what comes out of your mouth that matters so much as what is inside of his heart. As an illustration, I have here a phone. Most of you have something very similar to this, right? Now, most of us have a little password on our phone. You've got to type in the right combination of letters or little dots or whatever, and then once you do, you get access to that phone and you can make it do whatever you want. This kind of prayer, where you think you can just say the right words or pray long enough, is sort of like viewing God as an iPhone, where our job is to put in the right combination of words and phrases, and then when we do, we get access to divine power to do what we want. Isn't that what Jesus means when he says they think they'll be heard? Why? Because of their many words. That God's up there going, they haven't put in the right password yet. Oh, now they've prayed enough. I'll listen. That's not why God hears us. He hears us because Christ has paid the sacrifice. That Christ has washed us clean. We are not praying to a machine that needs a prayer password. You are praying to your Father. And so do you see how it's supposed to be personal and not mechanical? It's because we're praying to our Father. And that's actually reason one why not to pray like the hypocrites or the pagans. Because you're praying to your Father. It's not about those around us, and it's not because he has to be appeased by a certain number of words. It's because he's our Father. Now Jesus tells us two things about this Father. He says, first off, that he sees what is unseen. You go into that closet, you close the door, and your father who is in secret, when he sees what is unseen, that means he hears the prayers that no one else hears. He sees what no one else sees. And so he knows your deepest fears. He knows what you need. And that's the second thing. Jesus says he knows what you need before you even ask him. He knows the situation better than you do. It does not We do not pray in order to inform God of what's going on. He's well aware. He knows knows that you need grace and mercy to get through that issue at work with that difficult coworker. He knows you need help to pass that class. He knows you need his grace to let go of your anger and to forgive that person and deal with that issue. He knows. In fact, he knew it before you did. And so some of you might be thinking, okay, so what's the point? If God knows what I need, why should I pray at all? Well, I know what my kids need, and I still want to talk to them, right? Don't you? I know they need food, water, shelter, and I want them to talk to me still about those things and others. But it's not just that I want them to talk to me about their needs, I also know that they need a relationship with me. So I don't want them to just talk to me. 
I want them to talk with me. To share their emotions, to tell me what they're thinking about. And I know it's an imperfect analogy because I, like the rest of you, are not a perfect image of God. But it works. We talk to God in prayer because he loves us. He has invited us to share our needs with him. One of the ways that he has set up life, the, the, one of the basic rules of the kingdom of heaven, is ask and you shall receive. He set it up that prayer would be the means that those things are taken care of. And so when we need to vent, we can vent to him instead of spreading toxic gossip around. When we need advice, we can, sure, ask those around you who would have some input, but ask the Lord. He knows. When something's stressing you out, let the Lord know. Talk to him. Prayer is the means that God has established to provide the needs for us when we ask him. It's the means to remind us of our dependence on him when we regularly ask for help. It's how we regularly increase our love and trust of him when we see those prayers answered. It's the means by which he calms our anxious hearts when we lay those stressors at his feet. It's the means by which he blesses us. And if you think that the fact that God knows what you need before you ask him is a reason not to pray, then your view of prayer and of God is way too small. So that's the first reason not to pray like the hypocrites or pagans. Because we are praying to our Heavenly Father. The second reason is because He will reward our humble and personal prayers. Going back to the end of verse 6 here, He says, When your Father who sees what is done in secret, uh, then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. This is in direct contrast to the hypocrites. Remember, they've prayed and received the reward in the here and now. I don't know if you've ever heard of what's called the marshmallow test, but what you can do is sit a kid who's probably, let's say, 10 years old or younger probably, and you just set a marshmallow in front of them. You make a deal. You can have that marshmallow right now if you want. I'm going to leave, and when I come back, if you haven't eaten it, I'll give you a second marshmallow. You can choose whichever you want. And it's sort of like psychological torture. <laughs> There's videos on YouTube of kids, and you just see them like, oh, the, the dilemma. Well, what do you want? You want the reward now? You want to be seen by people? You want to be seen as holy and spiritual, and you want the approval of men? You can get it. Go for it. It's yours for the taking. But if you wait, you're going to get something even better. Now, I mentioned earlier that this particular teaching is in a larger section where Jesus is addressing several areas of spiritual life, and then it's part of the Sermon on the Mount. Now, in all of that, the idea of rewards, of treasure, of repayment, comes up over and over again. In chapter 5, verse 12, this is still Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, when people persecute you, you need to rejoice. Why? Because great is your reward in heaven. Why else would you rejoice? You're not happy because you're being persecuted now, right? It's because something good is coming later. In chapter, uh, same chapter 5, verse 46, he says, If you only love those who love you, what reward are you going to get? Everybody does that. That's easy. The reason we love our enemies is because there's reward in that. 
It ramps up in chapter 6. The idea of reward comes up eight times in the space of about 18 verses in this section. That's almost, if you were to average it out, almost every other verse. It's definitely a main aspect of Jesus' teaching here. And some of us might be thinking, well, that sort of taints like this whole, I want to spend time with the Lord thing. It feels like ulterior motives. It's not ulterior. It's the motive Jesus gave us. But something to notice. Every single time the idea of reward or treasure comes up, it's always in the future. It's never now. It's never immediate, and it's never apparent. It takes both patience and faith to receive this reward. It's a lot better, but it's a lot harder to get. But what is it? What is the reward? Come on, I want to know, right? Short answer, we don't know. That doesn't help you. We do know a few things. We know what it's not. We know that it's not immediate respect and honor. It's not worldly fame and glory and riches because that's what the hypocrites are getting. And he says that's what they've received, okay? So we know we're not getting that. Those things, by the way, are both shallow and temporary. It's probably far different than that and probably far better. I shouldn't say probably. It is far better. And the reason it's far better is because the one who gives it is far better. The reward Jesus shares here is probably not something material at all, or if it involves something material, that's kind of like the cherry on top. It probably um, has some of the same qualities that we see in rewards in other parts of the New Testament. And so you have New Testament authors, several of them, referring to a crown of sorts. Peter calls it a crown of glory that will never fade. James calls it a crown of life. Paul calls it a crown of righteousness. Now all of this is still imagery. This is still metaphor. But the idea is that this reward is eternal. It's life-giving. It's righteous. In the next section, Jesus talks about storing up treasure on heaven as opposed to on earth. And that treasure is secure. If you store up treasure here on earth, he says it's gonna, you could get robbed or it could be destroyed by the forces of time or nature. You ever been driving by a house that used to be big and beautiful and great and now it's just disgusting? That happens with everything. You might take care of it for a while, but over time, it's not going to last ultimately. This reward comes from the unseen and all-powerful God of the universe rather than the fickle hearts of humans. It does seem to involve some kind of honor, some kind of approval, and that would really balance this section out. I mean, it seems to be that hearing God say, well done, good and faithful servant, that could be the reward in and of itself. There probably is some kind of heavenly reward. Jesus talks about Believers um, possibly being given a reward to like rule cities and things like that. We're not sure exactly what's going on there. But we don't want to ever separate the gift from the giver. One commentator said, God himself is the reward of Christians. And so we probably don't want to get too caught up in the idea of what is this reward because more likely it's just God himself. If the point of prayer is seeking the face of God, then that's what you get. If you seek the praise of men, that's what you get. If you seek the face of God, that's what you get. In Psalm 1611, it says that in your presence, literally in your face, 
is the fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You will get the thing that Moses begged for in Exodus 34. You will get unprecedented joy and peace that you will not ever experience, no matter how much money you make, no matter how great your career is, or how good your family is. Those things are all fine. Those are good things to pursue in moderation and not be your gods, but they will not give you what only God can give you. You will experience God himself. And at the end of the day, the reward for the humble and personal prayer is far better than what you're going to get if you make prayer about performance. And so that's the second reason why not to pray like the hypocrites and the pagans, because he's going to reward us. Now, let's wrap all this up. Jesus is teaching his disciples here how not to pray. And here's a little chart that might help us. The hypocrite's prayer is public, ours is secret. Theirs is proud, ours is humble. Theirs is mechanical, ours is personal. The purpose for them is praise or reputation, or fame and reputation. Our purpose is seeking God's face. Their reward comes from men, men and women. Our reward comes from God. True prayer is humble and personal time with our Heavenly Father. He knows what we need. He sees and hears our secret prayers, the ones that you can't share, your unspokens, and He will reward us. Now, I, I know for myself, uh, I've experienced this, I think that many Christians, um, when they hear sermons on prayer or when they hear the topic of prayer come up, there's already sort of a baseline level of guilt. There's already sort of like, a, I, I, I wish I was better at that. I wish I spent more time doing it, and I wish the time I spent that it was like, I got more out of it, or I was better at it. That's something that I think um, is common, and it's an area where we could probably always grow, to be honest. Now, what Jesus instructs here, let's, let's try to apply that to our lives. So next time you go before the Lord to pray, just try to check your motives. And just try to affirm, Lord, I want to seek your face. That's why I'm here. Try to do it in a place where you're not going to be distracted, where you're not going to be seen by others, because maybe that's not your purpose when you start, but, I mean, it's kind of hard. It's kind of hard not to want people to like you. And so if you just do it in a way where no one's going to see, you're just removing that altogether. <clears throat> I want to close by encouraging us to not just apply this to our own personal prayer lives, but this is the beginning of our week of prayer. And so I do, ironically, want us to come and pray publicly. Um, because what can be applied to us personally out of Jesus' teaching here can also be applied to us corporately. In fact, some of the yous in this um, are plural yous. They're like y'alls. And so it's almost like he's telling us that there's a group prayer aspect here. And so we're prayer life as a church. I, I'm hoping that through this week of prayer we could grow and praying humbly and personally, and seeking the face of the Lord. And so I do want to encourage all of you to try to make at least two prayer meetings this week, to carve out some time. But don't come for me, because that would be really dumb. Okay? If you're coming for me, you, you're totally disobeying uh, what Jesus says here. Don't come because you want people to know you were here. Okay? Uh, I want us to come in order to seek the face of the Lord.
What I'm hoping is this will be a shot in the arm to help energize our corporate prayer life as a church and also be a jumpstart to help boost your own personal prayer life. So, like I said, try to make at least two. And then uh, just by way of heads up, uh, one of the things that we're going to start doing together as a church in order to try to grow in prayer is we're going to begin monthly prayer meetings. Uh, It'll be the first Sunday of every month starting on March 1st. They'll go from 5 to 6 p.m., and they will not be fancy or, um, you know, showy or anything like that. It'll, it'll honestly just be getting together, sitting in a circle, and praying. Um, and so I would encourage you, even if you're a person that's like, I'm not that great at prayer, come to some of those. It might help you. Let's pray together. Uh, Father, just to be honest, it feels weird to pray publicly at the end of this sermon. Um, But I do want to submit ourselves before you. I ask that you would point out in my own heart and the hearts of those uh, sitting in this room areas where we need to um, change. If we've been praying in a proud way or in a mechanical way uh, or treating you as if you're not our Father, uh, God, I I pray that you would uh, help us to adjust, to repent of that. And Lord, I ask that you would grow us in our desire to pray, both personally and as a church. Lord, we love you and we thank you for the privilege of praying. In Jesus' name, amen.